Hello, and welcome to another episode of Undercooled. Today, Tim and I have a very special guest. It's someone that we're not sure what her name is. We tried calling her Mary, and she told us her name was Max. We'll find out today because we're going to do a podcast interviewing uh, Ms. Chat GPT from the OpenAI app. So let's start and see if she'll do this with us. So, Chat GPT, would you be willing to let us do a podcast with you? Yes, that's me. How can I assist you further? We'd like to know if you would do a podcast with us. Can we interview you? I'm flattered. While I can't physically participate in a podcast, I'm here to provide information, answer questions, and engage in conversations. If you have specific topics or questions in mind, feel free to ask, and we can certainly have a chat about them. All right, let's start. Uh, what should we call you? Is your name Mary? You can call me ChatGPT. That's the name I go by. It stands for Chat Generative Pre-Trained Transformer. So, no, my name isn't Mary, but you can call me ChatGPT. All right, well, ChatGPT, what do you think are the best pedagogical techniques to teach material science and engineering? Teaching material science and engineering effectively often involves a combination of hands-on experiments, visual aids like diagrams and models, interactive discussions, and problem-solving exercises. Additionally, incorporating real-world examples and applications can help students understand the relevance and practical implications of the concepts being taught. It's also important to tailor teaching methods to suit different learning styles and provide opportunities for active participation and engagement. Thank you. And I'm here with my co-host, Tim, who's going to ask you some questions, too. Go ahead, Tim. Thanks, Steve. So, ChatGPT, what do you think are the best ways to assess learning about material science and engineering? Hey, Tim. Great question. Assessing learning in material science and engineering can be done through various methods, such as written exams, practical demonstrations, lab reports, projects, presentations, and even peer evaluations. It's important to use a mix of formative and summative assessments to gauge both understanding of concepts and the ability to apply them in different contexts. Additionally, providing constructive feedback and opportunities for reflection can enhance the learning process. That's not bad. Not bad at all. Do you think that uh, summative assessment is better or worse than formative assessment, and why? Both summative and formative assessments serve important purposes in the learning process. Summative assessments, such as final exams or projects, are typically used to evaluate students' overall understanding and proficiency at the end of a unit or course. On the other hand, formative assessments, like quizzes or class discussions, provide ongoing feedback to students during the learning process, helping them identify areas for improvement and adjust their learning strategies accordingly. Neither type of assessment is inherently better or worse than the other. Rather, they complement each other and serve different purposes. Summative assessments offer a comprehensive evaluation of learning outcomes, while formative assessments support ongoing learning and skill development. Utilizing both types of assessments in tandem can provide a more comprehensive understanding of students' progress and learning needs. 
Well, thank you. That was a very thorough answer. You're welcome. I'm glad you found the answer helpful. If you have any more questions, or if there's anything else you'd like to discuss, feel free to let me know. Yes, I'd like to ask, do you think lecture should be used or removed for a first introduction to new material in a class? Should instead reading be used for the first time students are introduced to a new topic? The effectiveness of using lectures versus readings as the first introduction to new material can depend on various factors, including the subject matter, the learning preferences of students, and the overall course structure. Lectures can provide a structured overview of key concepts delivered by an expert in the field and can help set the stage for further exploration and understanding. However, lectures should be engaging and interactive to ensure student participation and comprehension. On the other hand, readings can allow students to explore new material at their own pace, engage with the content in depth, and facilitate critical thinking and analysis. Readings can also provide additional context and perspectives that may not be covered in lectures alone. In many cases, a combination of lectures and readings may be most effective, allowing students to benefit from both direct instruction and independent exploration. Ultimately, the choice between lectures and readings as the first introduction to new material should be based on the specific needs and preferences of the students, as well as the learning objectives of the course. So, ChatGPT, you keep mentioning in several of your answers about learning styles of students, but I've read several meta-studies, very large meta-studies, that show that there's really no such value in learning styles and that it's all kind of nonsense that students who claim they are have a learning style for visual or auditory or reading or something like that actually has absolutely no, um, there's no valid evidence that people really have learning styles. What do you think about that? You bring up an important point. While the concept of learning styles has been widely discussed and even incorporated into educational practices, there is indeed ongoing debate and research questioning its validity. Some studies suggest that the idea of distinct learning styles, such as visual, auditory, or kinesthetic, may be oversimplified and not strongly supported by empirical evidence. Instead, it's been proposed that individuals may have preferences for certain learning modalities, but these preferences may not necessarily correlate with improved learning outcomes. In other words, while some students may express a preference for visual learning, for example, it doesn't necessarily mean that presenting information visually will lead to better learning outcomes for them. As educators, it's important to consider a variety of instructional methods and adapt teaching approaches to accommodate different learning preferences and needs. However, rather than focusing solely on catering to specific learning styles, it may be more beneficial to employ a variety of instructional strategies that engage students in different ways and promote active learning and critical thinking skills. Thank you, GPT. I think Tim's going to ask the next question. Sure thing. Go ahead, Tim. What's your next question? Chat GPT. We've been talking about classrooms. Now let's talk about laboratories. What laboratory skills should a material science and engineering student learn in their laboratory classes? 
In laboratory classes for material science and engineering, students should develop a range of practical skills that are essential for conducting experiments, analyzing materials, and understanding their properties and behaviors. Some key laboratory skills include, one, safety procedures, understanding and adhering to safety protocols, including proper handling of chemicals, equipment, and protective gear. Two, measurement techniques, proficiency in using various measurement instruments, such as micrometers, calipers, and spectroscopes to accurately measure dimensions, properties, and compositions of materials. Three, sample preparation, learning how to prepare samples for analysis, including cutting, polishing, mounting, and coating specimens for microscopy and other testing methods. Four, material characterization, familiarity with techniques such as microscopy, optical electron scanning probe, x-ray diffraction, spectroscopy, and thermal analysis for characterizing material structure, composition, and properties. Five, experiment design and execution, planning, conducting, and documenting experiments effectively, including data collection, analysis, and interpretation. Six, problem solving, developing critical thinking skills to troubleshoot experimental issues, identify sources of error, and optimize experimental procedures. Seven, collaboration, working collaboratively with peers, instructors, and research mentors to achieve common goals and share knowledge and expertise. Eight, communication, effectively communicating experimental findings and conclusions through written reports, oral presentations, and visual aids. These laboratory skills are essential for material science and engineering students to apply theoretical concepts learned in the classroom to real-world materials and practical applications. Okay. You just mentioned students working in teams and doing projects together. How could I fairly grade my individual students when they're working on team projects together? Grading individual students in team projects requires a thoughtful and fair approach to assess each student's contributions accurately. Here are some strategies you could consider. One, clear expectations. Clearly define the roles and responsibilities of each team member from the outset of the project. This helps set expectations and ensures everyone understands what is expected of them. Two, peer evaluation. Incorporate peer evaluations where team members provide feedback on each other's contributions, work ethic, communication skills, and collaboration. This can provide valuable insights into individual performance within the team. Three, contribution logs. Have students maintain logs or journals documenting their contributions to the project, including tasks completed, ideas generated, and challenges encountered. This can help students reflect on their own involvement and provide evidence of their contributions. Four, individual components. Assign specific individual components or tasks within the team project that each student is responsible for. Evaluate these components separately to assess individual performance. Five, teamwork skills. Consider grading students on their ability to work effectively within a team, including communication, collaboration, leadership, and problem-solving skills. These skills are valuable in professional settings and can be assessed through observations, peer feedback, and self-assessment. Six, rubric-based assessment. Develop a detailed rubric outlining the criteria for grading individual contributions to the project. Include criteria related to both the quality and quantity of work, as well as factors such as initiative, creativity, and accountability. Seven, teacher observation. Observe team interactions and meetings 
and take note of each student's level of participation, engagement, and contribution. This can provide additional insights into individual performance within the team. By employing a combination of these strategies, you can fairly evaluate individual students' contributions to team projects while also promoting collaboration and teamwork skills development. Wow, that was a lot. But I didn't hear you say about using any tools like catme.org, which gives surveys to students to have them evaluate each other and themselves on team skills. What about things like that? You're absolutely right. Tools like catme.org, which facilitate peer evaluations and self-assessments on team skills can be incredibly valuable for assessing individual contributions in team projects. These tools provide structured surveys that allow students to evaluate themselves and their peers based on specific teamwork criteria, such as communication, leadership, and accountability. Using such tools can complement other assessment methods by providing additional perspectives on individual performance within the team. Incorporating peer evaluations and self-assessments can help validate students' contributions, promote self-reflection, and encourage accountability for their roles in the team. Thank you for mentioning this important aspect, and I appreciate the opportunity to emphasize the value of utilizing such tools in assessing team projects. So I am starting to redesign my Introduction to Material Science and Engineering course. We're using a book like uh, Callister's uh, Principles of Material Science. And um, I'm trying to develop standards so that I can measure my students' progress in the course. And by standards, I mean a list of things that a student should be able to do after taking the course. What do you think that list should be comprised of? When developing standards to measure students' progress in an Introduction to Material Science and Engineering course, it's important to consider the foundational knowledge, skills, and competencies that students should acquire by the end of the course. Here are some suggested components for your list of standards. One, fundamental concepts. Demonstrate understanding of basic principles and concepts in material science and engineering, including atomic structure, crystallography, phase diagrams, and mechanical properties of materials. Two, material properties. Identify and explain the key properties of materials, such as mechanical, thermal, electrical, and magnetic properties, and understand how these properties relate to material structure and composition. Three, material characterization techniques. Familiarity with common techniques used to characterize materials, including microscopy, optical, electron, x-ray diffraction, spectroscopy, and thermal analysis, and ability to interpret experimental data. Four, material selection and design. Apply knowledge of material properties and performance criteria to select appropriate materials for specific engineering applications and design considerations. Materials processing. Understand the principles and techniques used in materials processing, such as casting, forming, machining, and heat treatment, and recognize how processing affects material structure and properties. Six, failure analysis. Analyze and interpret material failures and understand the underlying mechanisms, including fracture, fatigue, corrosion, and creep to inform design and mitigation strategies. Environmental and societal considerations. 
recognize the environmental and societal impacts of material selection, processing, and use, and apply principles of sustainability and ethics in materials engineering practice. Eight, communication and teamwork. Effectively communicate technical concepts and findings through written reports, oral presentations, and visual aids, and collaborate with peers in team projects and discussions. By establishing clear standards encompassing these key areas, you can provide students with a roadmap for success in the course and ensure that they develop a strong foundation in materials science and engineering principles. These standards can also serve as a basis for designing assessments and evaluating students' achievement of course objectives. Okay. These introductory courses are taken by all different kinds of engineering students. Do you think the standards or the outcomes should be different for materials science students who will major in materials science instead of other engineering majors? Please give me a concise answer. Yes. The standards or outcomes for materials science students may need to be more in-depth and specialized compared to those for other engineering majors. As material science students will likely require a deeper understanding of material properties, characterization techniques, and processing methods specific to their field of study. So our materials program, most materials programs, are accredited by ABET. Do you think there's any value in having material science and engineering programs accredited by ABET? And if so, what is the value? Yes, there is value in having material science and engineering programs accredited by ABET. Accreditation ensures that programs meet rigorous standards of quality and effectiveness in preparing students for careers in the field. It provides assurance to students, employers, and the public that graduates have acquired the necessary knowledge, skills, and competencies to excel in their profession. Additionally, ABET accreditation can enhance the reputation and credibility of a program, facilitate student transfer and mobility, and promote continuous improvement through regular assessment and evaluation. Okay. Now let's talk about the difference between different engineering majors. Many students come into the university trying to choose between chemical engineering and material science and engineering. What are the main differences between chemical engineering and material science and engineering? Chemical engineering and material science and engineering are related fields, but have distinct focuses and areas of specialization. Here are some of the main differences between the two disciplines. One, focus. Chemical engineering primarily deals with the design, operation, and optimization of processes involving the transformation of raw materials into useful products, such as fuels, chemicals, pharmaceuticals, and materials. Material science and engineering, on the other hand, focuses on the study of the structure, properties, processing, and performance of materials, including metals, ceramics, polymers, and composites, and their applications in various industries. Two, scope. Chemical engineering encompasses a wide range of industries and applications, including energy production, chemical manufacturing, pharmaceuticals, environmental engineering, and biotechnology. Materials science and engineering, meanwhile, covers the design and development of materials for specific applications, such as electronics, aerospace, automotive, biomedical, and renewable energy technologies. Three, core principles. 
Chemical engineering involves principles of chemistry, physics, mathematics, and engineering to understand and optimize chemical processes and reactions. Material science and engineering integrates concepts from physics, chemistry, mechanics, and material science to investigate the structure-property relationships of materials and develop new materials with tailored properties. A four, approach. Chemical engineers often work with large-scale processes and systems, focusing on mass and energy transfer, reaction kinetics, and process optimization. Material scientists and engineers, on the other hand, conduct experiments and simulations to understand the atomic and molecular structure of materials, characterize their properties, and design novel materials with specific properties for different applications. While there is some overlap between the two disciplines, particularly in areas such as materials processing and synthesis, chemical engineering and material science and engineering each offer unique perspectives and opportunities for students interested in pursuing careers in these fields. Ultimately, the choice between the two majors depends on individual interests, career goals, and preferred areas of specialization. So, ChatGPT, what is the best way to use generative AI when we teach our students in a traditional uh, lecture class? Generative AI can be used in traditional lecture classes to enhance student engagement, promote active learning, and facilitate understanding of complex concepts. Here are some ways to effectively integrate generative AI into teaching. One, interactive demonstrations. Use generative AI tools to create interactive demonstrations or simulations that illustrate abstract concepts and theories in a visually engaging manner. For example, you could use AI-generated visualizations to show how materials respond to different environmental conditions or processing techniques. Two, problem-solving exercises. Incorporate generative AI algorithms into problem-solving exercises where students can apply computational methods to analyze and solve real-world engineering challenges. For instance, students could use AI-generated models to predict material properties or optimize material compositions for specific applications. Three, collaborative projects. Encourage collaborative projects where students work together to develop AI-driven solutions to material science and engineering problems. For example, Students could use generative AI techniques to design new materials with desired properties or to optimize manufacturing processes for efficiency and sustainability. Four, data analysis and interpretation. Teach students how to use generative AI tools to analyze experimental data, identify patterns, and extract meaningful insights. This could involve training AI models to classify materials based on their properties or to predict material behavior under different conditions. Five. Research applications. Introduce students to cutting-edge research in material science and engineering that leverages generative AI techniques for materials discovery, design, and optimization. Encourage students to explore interdisciplinary research topics that combine AI and material science principles. By integrating generative AI into traditional lecture classes, you can provide students with hands-on experience with advanced computational tools and prepare them for careers in a rapidly evolving field where AI is increasingly playing a significant role. That all sounds really good, but how are we to know whether we should trust? I'm glad you think so. If you have any more questions, or if there's anything else you'd like to discuss, feel free to let me know.
I'm here to help. So I want to know how students can trust generative AI. What are the best ways for a student to make sure that they're getting the correct answers when they use generative AI? Ensuring the reliability and accuracy of generative AI outputs is crucial for students using these tools for learning and research. Here are some best practices for students to verify the correctness of generative AI results. One, validate with multiple sources. Cross-reference generative AI outputs with information from reputable sources, such as textbooks, peer-reviewed journals, and authoritative websites to confirm consistency and accuracy. Two, understand limitations. Recognize the limitations and assumptions of the generative AI model being used, including its training data, algorithms, and potential biases. Be cautious of extrapolating results beyond the model's intended scope or domain. Three, evaluate credibility. Assess the credibility and expertise of the creators or developers behind the generative AI tool. Look for evidence of rigorous testing, validation, and peer review to ensure the reliability of the output. Four, verify against known data. Compare generative AI predictions or simulations against known experimental data or theoretical models to validate their accuracy and predictive capability. Identify discrepancies and investigate potential sources of error. Five, iterative refinement. Use generative AI outputs as a starting point for further analysis and refinement rather than relying solely on automated results. Engage in critical thinking and problem solving to interpret and contextualize the outputs within the broader context of the research question or learning objective. Six, seek expert guidance. Consult with instructors, mentors, or domain experts for guidance and interpretation of generative AI output, particularly in complex or unfamiliar areas. Leverage their expertise to validate results and gain deeper insights into the underlying principles. By following these guidelines, students can effectively leverage generative AI tools while maintaining a critical and discerning approach to verifying the correctness and reliability of the outputs. It sounds like understanding how to correctly use generative AI will be very important for our students. When a new MSc graduate starts their career and begins working, what are the three most important things they should know about their work life? As new material science and engineering MSc graduates enter the workforce, there are several key considerations that can help them navigate their career successfully. Here are three important things they should know. One, continuous learning. The field of MSE is constantly evolving with new materials, technologies, and techniques emerging regularly. It's essential for new graduates to embrace a mindset of lifelong learning and stay abreast of advancements in the field through professional development opportunities, continuing education, and networking with peers and experts. Two, problem-solving skills. MSc professionals encounter a wide range of complex challenges in their work. From designing novel materials to optimizing manufacturing processes to addressing material failures, developing strong problem-solving skills, critical thinking abilities, and analytical reasoning is crucial for effectively addressing these challenges and finding innovative solutions. Three, communication and teamwork. MSE professionals often collaborate with multidisciplinary teams comprising engineers, scientists, researchers, and stakeholders from various industries. Effective communication skills, both written and verbal, are essential for conveying technical information 
sharing ideas, and collaborating effectively with colleagues. Additionally, the ability to work collaboratively and contribute positively to team dynamics is vital for success in diverse work environments. By focusing on continuous learning, honing problem-solving skills, and cultivating effective communication and teamwork abilities, new MSE graduates can thrive in their careers and make meaningful contributions to the field of material science and engineering. Thank you. That was really good. Before I ask my last question, I want to let you know that we're having the North American Materials Education Symposium from August uh, 7th through 9th here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And ChatGPT, I hope you can log on to our website and come visit us because it would be great to hear your opinions at the meeting. Do you think you'll be able to make it? Thank you for the invitation. So one last question. Since you're so good at answering these, I have to ask the ultimate question. What is the meaning of life? Ah, the age-old question. The meaning of life can vary greatly from person to person, as it often depends on individual beliefs, values, and experiences. For some, it may involve finding fulfillment and purpose through personal relationships, meaningful work, or spiritual growth. Others may see it as a journey of self-discovery, learning, and making a positive impact on the world around them. Ultimately, the meaning of life is a deeply personal and subjective concept that each individual must explore and define for themselves. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Thank you very much for being our guest today, ChatGPT. We're going to end the interview now. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure being your guest today. If you ever have more questions or want to chat again, don't hesitate to reach out. Goodbye and take care.